Good morning, brothers, sisters. Daniel 6. We're in Daniel 6, so we work our way through to our uh, Christmas break. Let's pray, and then we'll, uh, I'll read the first nine verses. Father, thank you again for a new day. Thank you for your mercies that are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. We praise you and thank you. And ask, Lord, for your blessing upon our time this morning so we learn more about your, your sovereign, um, omnipotent reign and rule through kings, kingdoms, as the king of kings. Prepare us for worship together this morning and preparation for your table. In Jesus' name, amen. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom, and over them, three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them, that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. And the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects, satraps, the high officials, and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days, shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document that is the injunction. Uh, The book of Daniel, as we have seen from the outset of our study, um, is about God's sovereign rule over kings um, and kingdoms. Since the age of about 14... Daniel has watched kings and kingdoms come and go. Kings and kingdoms rise and, and fall. And he's, he has survived. Daniel has endured. For many, many years at this point, he survived the collapse um, of the kingdom of Judah, um, taken away as a prisoner. He witnessed and survived the rise and fall of mighty King Nebuchadnezzar. He 
witnessed the rise and fall of King Belshazzar and his four predecessors. We, we looked at some of that last week with regard to those who reigned prior to him. Um, all of them were raised up and disposed by the king of glory, and all for God's um, greater purposes, as we, as we have seen. Um, the only sovereign king, the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is forevermore. Um, Jesus has always been the judge of kingdoms, is the second person of the Godhead. Any judgment upon nations in the Old Testament was by way of the Son. And as incarnate Son, as we shall see next week, who has um, ascended physically, glorified body, and now has reign as King of kings and Lord of lords, as, as incarnate God. So here, um, Daniel, amidst all these circumstances, through these, the first um, six chapters um, of Daniel, um, he knows who is in control. He's unshaken by world events. And now, here at about the age of 80, he's around 80 years old, Daniel finds himself before yet another king, um, one more kingdom where his hardest test remains, um, a situation that will certainly test his trust in the sovereignty of God. And this chapter, by the way, um, concludes the historical portion of the book of Daniel. The first cha six chapters, historical. Uh, chapter 7 through 12 are prophetic. We'll begin looking at the prophecies. And we'll, we'll go back and we look. As for instance, next week we look at the prophecy um, and the vision given to Daniel. We go backward to the time of Belshazzar. So this ends the, the historical portion um, of the book. And today uh, we enter into one of the most well-known stories um, in all the Bible, um, where Daniel is cast into a den of lions. And it's really a story of, of how jealous men, just, this, this just displays the ugliness of envy and jealousy, time and time again throughout the scriptures. Jealous men um, devise a trap for this Daniel, who lives above reproach, with regard to his devotion to God. Um, the, the, the typical message um, of Daniel in the lion's den that we've probably heard since childhood is that we should all dare to be Daniels, right? I, I do not know how many, I, I don't know how many titles of messages I've heard um, with that particular title, dare to be a Daniel. In, in no doubt, Daniel is faithful to Yahweh. He, he's a faithful man of God. And he is an example to all believers for certain. Uh, but, but this well-known text is not primarily about Daniel um, and his commitment to God and, and or his prayer life. Um, again, it points us to God. God who is faithful, the one who rules, the one who reigns, even when it looks like things within any government are upside down. You know, like ours. He reigns. And he rules. So here in verse 1, it seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom and over, and over them, three commissioners of whom Daniel was one. These satraps might be, that they might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. 
So basically we're being told because of the potential for governmental corruption, the king attempts to, to set up a cabinet in order to protect himself, um, people um, from undercutting his rule or from prostituting um, their own power. So he sets, he sets up the cabinet. Um, there's basically a sign on the door in the royal palace here um, in the plains of Babylon that, that reads, you know, um, under new management. The Persians, right, the Medes, have replaced the Babylonians, that is the Chaldeans, um, and they are now the occupiers of the Babylonian kingdom. So here's Darius. He's in charge. He's ruling as, as, this, as Persian king over this, what was once known as uh, the Babylonian empire under Nebuchadnezzar and those who followed. But first, uh, I want to discuss um, Darius because there's a historical problem um, regarding his identity. And scholars disagree exactly who this Darius is. Um, in the Bible passages that we have, they, they don't offer a lot of help. So um, there's three options, really. Um, first, some conclude that there is a gap um, in, in our historical knowledge there's no way um, to confirm exactly who um, Darius is. Um, so we just have to hope for more um, forthcoming ar archaeological evidence. And that's where they stop. They bail out there. They say, we don't know. We'll hope for more revelation through archaeology in the future. Um, others conclude that Babylon um, became part of the Medo-Persian uh, Medo Empire. And at that point... Um, Cyrus, King Cyrus, who was prophesied 150 years before he was before, born, by the way, in Isaiah 44, um, that he installed Darius as a governor in Babylon. We see that in chapter 5, verse 31, where, where his name appears. And likely they conclude that he is the, the, the ruling name, that is Darius, is the ruling name of the Persian general Gubaru. You can go study that on your own, okay? And the third option, the argument is that Darius is Cyrus, the Persian. He's actually the same person that, that Daniel refers to as, as um, Darius the Mede. And there are um, various arguments um, for that. This would mean that when we get to verse 28, if you want to look at that, um, instead of translating the word after the name Darius, rather than translating it and, we would translate that word as that is. So it would read like this. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius, that is, in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So that, that may be a solution to the problem. Um, I personally lean that way. Um, you, you find the same grammatical construction in other portions of Scripture. For instance, you find it in... Uh, First Chronicles, I think it's five. So I believe um, Darius is Cyrus, so uh, we'll hold that here for the sake of our study. So here's Daniel. He's the chief advisor for Darius, um, a man that the king knew he could trust. This is a trustworthy man who lives above reproach. Above reproach, no valid accusation can be held against you. Valid accusation. 
valid. Verse 3, Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit, and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. So here, uh, the governor's other advisors were jealous of Daniel. Verse 4, a common sin among men. And as a result, um, a plot is soon hatched to remove Daniel from his new office. But because of his outstanding reputation, uh, the only way to get rid of him was to outlaw Daniel's piety. Verse 5. So here, they they devise a very deceptive, manipulative, and and self-serving scheme. In verses 6 to 7, first notice they they offer false praise to the king. O king, live forever. It's just a common greeting, really. And then they appeal to his vanity, right? Implying that only Darius is all-knowing and worthy of praise. And then they lie. There's a lie here. Claiming that all royal officials had agreed to this plan when Daniel, who's their boss, really, wasn't even consulted. So they proposed this new and irrevocable law. And then evil men anytime you invoke a law like this, will work to advance the conflict of the law. You know, this shows up again. We see this in Acts chapter 17. This is what happened to the church. When jealous Jews, in Acts 17, jealous Jews condemning the church, if you remember, they they accused God's people, the church of Jesus Christ, Um, They accuse them of of living contrary to civil law. We read this in verse 5, chapter 17, Acts. But the Jews, becoming jealous, and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, attacking the house of Jason, shouting, Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decree of Caesar, saying that there's another king, this Jesus. And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities. In the early church, Christians were saying, we will honor Caesar. We will honor Caesar in every area he has the right to command. But we will not bow. We bow to one. And that's the king of kings the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the true sovereign. We bow to him alone. And that's, that's what's happening in Daniel 6. Evil men, shrewd men, who, who press this conflict against men of God. So here's, here you have devious men working to use law, common law, public law, civil law, to, to overcome God's kingdom. You try to overcome God's kingdom, you will be crushed, as we shall see. You will be crushed. And that's why we call all men everywhere to repent and believe. This situation foreshadows 
the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Coming out of the pit. We'll see that as we move on. So here, um, Darius is fooled by these liars. Daniel never would have suggested a plan like this. Amen? So he's tricked. He's duped. Verse 8. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document that is the injunction. In verse 10, now Daniel, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house, now in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. So, in other words, he's not instigating confrontation here. He goes about his normal routine. This is the man of God. He wasn't praying simply so that people would think he's a godly man. He wasn't doing this to make a point as many of us are tempted to do, to look so righteous in in front of other people. But when culture battles against us, we're sometimes tempted to carry out acts of piety in public. That's the temptation. You know, for instance, Christians may battle for school prayer. I don't know how many times I've heard Christians, you know, prayer has been taken out of schools, you know, 1964, whatever year it was, and we, we battle for it. And they want to make a public expression of their desire for, in the context of, of, say, a public school setting. And they make this, this public spectacle of themselves, you know, praying to look spiritual. And these Christians, many of them, they don't even go to the, the, the church prayer meeting. It's all show. That's not the case with Daniel. Daniel's spontaneity here is the result of much disciplined prayer, a disciplined prayer life. So he's not bowing up, opening up the windows, saying, I will pray in spite of the decree. This was his routine. And, you know, you might say, well, but he opened his windows. No, he always opened his windows. And he faced toward Jerusalem when he prayed, and that practice goes all the way back to the dedication of Solomon in the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8. That is prayer that is directed towards Yahweh's city and his temple. Specifically, the context, if you read that later on, 1 Kings 8, specifically is when God's people sin and they're defeated and taken away. And here they are. They've been defeated and taken away. And Daniel, therefore, opens his windows and he points toward Jerusalem and and he prays back the promises of God. And we looked at that, if you were in our study on the theology of prayer. Because that's where God promised to bring his people back to the promised land. So here they are. He's in exile, has been for, for decades And this is his routine, three times a day. He gets on his knees, he opens his window, and he prays to God facing um, Jerusalem. Now, the the reasons Christians do not or definitely should not 
pray toward Jerusalem today? Anybody? Because Jesus is the temple who's at the right hand of God the Father. And we pray in his name. He is the fulfillment of Solomon's exhortation in 1 Kings 8 that was Daniel's practice in this day. Jesus fulfills all that. We pray to the Father in the name of the Son, so we don't have to face any direction when we do that. Amen? I don't think anyone here does that. If you do, stop it. It's ridiculous. (laughs) I mean it. So here, like Daniel, you know, we, we shouldn't go out of our way to fight with ruling authorities. But at the same time, we must not bow to ungodly demands. That's one lesson we learn from Daniel's life. So here there's created conflict between Daniel's fidelity to God and his law. Daniel's fidelity to the law of God and this temptation and this pressing of fidelity to the king and his law. Daniel bows to Almighty God. I love it. Verse 11, Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any God or man besides you, O king, for 30 days is to be cast in the lion's den? Hmm? Hmm? The king replied, the statement is true. According to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. And then they answered and spoke before the king, Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king. Bunch of little tattletales. Typical. Typical politicians. Or to the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. And then as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply, deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. The king realizes this is a plot to get Daniel. This is not to enhance his power, the king's power or his authority. They want to get Daniel the king realizes it and he's startled. So notice first he sees the motives behind the men. And secondly, he knows Daniel, who is the most faithful, the most faithful, faithful and faithful man in the kingdom, is now beside himself because of this law. And add to that his affection and care for Daniel. He's troubled. Verse 15. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. Then the king gave orders, and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Your God whom you constantly serve will himself deliver you. Do you love that? Talk about influence. I love it. So notice, 
Daniel here is condemned by a law, cannot change. He's cast into this lion den, and the king, viewed, by the way, as a god on earth, is tricked by his nobles, and now he's a slave to his own law. He's racked. He's troubled. And here now, the king's signet ring, along with the signet rings of the nobles, must be pressed into the seal around the tomb. We see something of this in the burial of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Pilate orders a stone to be rolled in front of the tomb and then you put a seal around it, you would press your signet into it, and then he set guard over the tomb. Nothing stops the will of God. They all dropped like dead men, remember? When a couple angels show up. So here Darius um, has allowed his ego um, to put him into deep soul trouble. This guy is, is rattled to the core. And this causes him a very, a very restless night. Verse 18 the king went off to his palace, spent the night fasting, and no entertainment was brought before him, and his sleep fled from him. So there's no diversions here. There's no instruments of music brought in. No wives, no concubines tonight, guy. <laughs> but notice, this king has some expectation, some degree of expectation that Daniel survived the night. Verse 19. The king arose at dawn, at the break of day, and went in haste to the lion's den. When he had come near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? Verse 21, Daniel he honors this pagan king with the customary greeting, right? O king, live forever. And then he informs the king that indeed Yahweh has spared his life. Sending an angel to shut the mouth of the lions. My God sent his angel. My God. The God. The king, O king. king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatsoever, no injury whatever was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And then in verse 24, we see uh, the dark side of Daniel's deliverance. The king is furious with these officials. Having cunningly gone after my main man. You don't do that. So he throws not only them, but their wives and their children into the pit. Now, this is not something Daniel asked for, by the way. This is the king's doing. So his accusers, along with their families, become lion food. Brutal. They cast them, those who maliciously accused Daniel, cast them, their children, and their wives into the lion's den. 
And they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. There's apparently, archaeologists tell us that there was two entries, two entryways to these pits. One was a, down below, and there was a ramp that you let in these um, lions. And uh, another was a hole up top. So I don't know if they hit the top of the, the ramp or what before they hit the bottom of the den. Their bones were crushed. They're, they're devoured. Quite amazing. That's the story. So here we, we see an act of retribution, great vengeance, violence. This is a picture of evil recoiling back on the evildoers. In the end, that's what's going to happen to all those who oppose the kingdom of God. Their evil will recoil upon themselves. The lies that they've bought into, the lies that they have reflected, they'll be destroyed, judged. That's just a graphic picture of God's judgment. And that is what it is, friends. Then Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who were living in all the land, may your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before God, the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. His dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius, that is, in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Now, did you notice that this chapter is very closely associated with chapter 3? I want to lay some of the similarities out. In chapter 3, you know, Daniel, his three friends refused to obey an unrighteous command of Nebuchadnezzar, that is to worship, to bow down and worship his image, the image he had set up, and they're thrown into a situation of certain death. Faced with a situation where obedience to the king's law, that is disobedience to the king's law, their lives are threatened, condemned to a cruel death. In both chapters, an angel is sent to provide protection in miraculous deliverance. In both, in both cases, the king issues a decree afterward honoring the God of Israel. And then he promotes the Judeans. He promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And again, Daniel, Daniel has been promoted through, throughout the record of Daniel. In both cases, the king's word, his law is changed. It's nullified. You see that back in chapter 3, verse 28. And of course, the name of the God of Israel is blessed. It's exalted, high and lifted up. So here in chapter, th- or, um, here, chapter 5, as in chapter 3, you have Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego 
the lives, their lives, the testimony of their lives actually change the law of the king. That's influence. So in both instances, we see faith and trust and obedience to God that brings victory to these men. It's the God of these men who delivers, who promotes, who blesses. These men, by faith, we read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 33, conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, shut the mouths of lions, and quenched the power of fire. Hebrews 11. Now, in chapter 3, it was a Babylonian king. In chapter 5, it was a Medo-Persian king, as prophesied. In chapter 3, there were three men standing together. In chapter 5, there's one man standing alone. Faithful. They're all faithful. Chapter 3 is a situation that involved the practice of public worship. Chapter 5 involved the practice of private worship. Worship of the one true God. Chapter 3, there was a command that requires what God forbids, that is bowing before idols. A command that God forbids. And in chapter 5, it's a command that forbids what God requires. That is that his people commune with him. And they stand. So both chapters serve as an encouragement. As we recognize the persecuted church today, uh, they stand as, as an encouragement to those who are persecuted for the sake of faith and a call for integrity for God's people who may be hard-pressed by the culture. Don't cave. Stand by the grace God provides in the gift of faith that we have, the substance of our faith, and we can stand and not be pressured to the point of failure. So although men may seek to alter and set aside the laws of God, um, they will be judged in the end. Um, you know, even in the mercy that God shows to us, when you think about this, it's kind of a, an application to this study. Um, even in the mercy that God shows to us through the finished work of Jesus Christ, mercy is only granted because of the redemptive work of Christ. God just doesn't forgive sins, friends. He can't. Because he's just. He's, he's holy. So, in other words, grace and mercy are not free. We talk about the free grace gospel, yes, but grace and mercy are not free in that every transgression against God's law must be and will be punished. It will be punished. Therefore, the only reason that grace and mercy can flow to sinners, that is, it can be extended to man, is because Christ, fulfilling all the demands of the law, himself was crushed. The law is not set aside in the salvation of anyone. It's fulfilled in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, you'll be judged by the law. It's a beautiful picture that we see here. Fully met by Christ alone. And, and is that not what makes salvation so glorious? 
<laughs> and we take it for granted, oftentimes. May we never. I was driving the other day thinking about how many things I take for granted. I think I told Ann this or somebody, did I tell you? Everything, which drove me to be thankful. I was eating an egg sandwich on the way in my truck as I was driving here up a hill. Oh, I don't have to walk up the hill. That's a blessing to have a car. And I took a hot shower this morning. That was nice. Hot water, that's a blessing. Living in a home that's safe and secure, has doors, locks, heat. Some have air, no air conditioning, but we don't need air conditioning because we have an ocean breeze that comes right up Bilbo and into my house. Thankful, let alone for the salvation we have in Christ. Who upheld the justice of God so that grace can be dispensed to all God's elect. And we won't be crushed in the pit because the law is fulfilled through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So instead of fearing our enemy, we really ought to fear for our enemy. That's, that was Daniel's life. He feared not the enemy. He feared for his enemy is a man of God. So because God is sovereign, we can trust him. We can put our faith in him um, even when things just seem impossible. So we, we pray in line with the faithfulness of God as guilty sinners who deserve the pit who've been set free by the one who was punished in our place. He entered the pit. Jesus entered the pit on our behalf, brought back from the death, destroying the power of the pit for all who are in Christ. You'll never taste it. You'll never see it. Not guilty. Because when Jesus died, and rose from the dead, the, the, heaven, the heavenly tribunal, if you will, declared him not guilty. And therefore, because your faith and trust is in him, what will you hear on the last day? Not guilty. You get it? Not guilty. Daniel was an innocent man, declared innocent, brought up out of the pit. This, this is a foreshadowing um, of the verdict that holds true for every believer in Jesus Christ, and that is, once again, not guilty. Sinclair Ferguson said this, It is not surprising that the early church saw in this event of Daniel in the lion's den a foretaste of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Daniel's life is intended to illustrate in Old Testament terms the meaning of faith in the promised Messiah. End of quote. Okay, finally. Daniel, a man who, who's greatly gifted, placed in the palace at, at this point in time of, of Darius, the king, this Persian king who conquered Babylon. He's a pagan king, another pagan king, that is, who acknowledges that Daniel's God is the living God. Again, the influence, again, the impact that this man's life had, but it also fulfills another promise of God. And again, it goes back to God. We, we, we take the, the light off of Daniel, a servant of God, and the light shines 
back on God. This is a promise that, that God uses even pagan kings to carry out his redemptive purposes. And I want to close as it's recounted in Ezra uh, chapter 1. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, context Jeremiah 25, you can mark it down and read it at home. We don't have time to look at it. That after 70 years of captivity prophesied by Jeremiah, they would be set free. By the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor, at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And of course, we read of Cyrus, who was prophesied in Isaiah. You can read it in 40, chapter 44. In 45, 150, 150 years before the guy was born, by name, Cyrus. Who's sovereign? God. And Daniel knew it. Amen? So there's the historical portion of Daniel. We'll get into uh, chapter 7 next week. One of my favorite passages of the Bible. Lord, thank you for our time and thank you for your word. Thank you for your faithfulness always in spite of our faithlessness. And the example of this man, this Daniel, a man who lived above reproach as his faith and trust was in you, the one true God. Help us, Lord, to live in a way, a manner worthy of the calling as we entrust ourselves to you, the almighty one, omnipotent, glorious, magnificent. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.